What happens to our life when our sense of identity dissolves? What happens to our relationships when we no longer play by the old rules? What is it that survives dissolution? That's our topic today in the grace space. Dissolution is when something falls apart, disperses, dissolves, and changes form. It's a form of death. We see it in the rotting fruit, the log in the fire that turns to ash, the sugar cube that melts into your coffee. Dissolution is part of nature and the universe. It's one half of the alchemical process, coagulum solvare, the process by which all things are constantly moving between densification and dissolution. It happens at every scale of existence, including the stars who expand and collapse in on themselves over eons of time to fuse the very elements that make up our bodies and everything we know. Gold, silver, platinum, the elements we consider most valuable are formed inside the stars under the most extreme pressure that exists in the universe. In the journey of the soul, dissolution occurs often under extreme pressure, often only when we have no other choice as we let go of the false self with all of its beliefs and requirements and its created world. Things, people, familiar roles, your health, your illusions, even parts of your body might be removed. The hard shell of the ego begins to crack and fall away. Obsolete patterns are exposed, and long-buried fears are no longer resisted, but faced. Everything that you thought you knew and believed you were is called into question, and you, as you knew yourself, begin to dissolve. The truth is, you can't survive dissolution. Not the you you think of as you, but something that could never be destroyed emerges in the process. Call it the dark night of the soul, call it the void, call it Shaktipat, It feels like a period of intense pressure, and it isn't easy. But if you want to be free, you're willing to go through anything and feel everything to let it go. Take a deep breath and remember there's a power Breathing You. This is your space of sanity in an evolving world, where we learn about spiritual law and how to apply it to our lives in a way that is practical and life-changing. This is where we remember truth to make the world a better place, one person at a time. I'm Claire Lotier, inspirational speaker, teacher of the technology of transformation and a certified life mastery consultant and spiritual growth mentor. Welcome to the grace space. Back in January, I was visiting my dear aunt in the hospital here in France. Every time I went to see her, which was about twice a week, she was a little smaller, a little more shrunken into the bed. 
Out of nowhere, back in the fall, a bout of septicemia, followed by a catastrophic stroke, meant that in a devastatingly short time, she had gone from a vibrant, well-dressed, made-up, coquettish 85-year-old, effortlessly cooking dinner for 17 people at her own birthday, exclaiming her outrage at the latest world news to her ubiquitous companion, the radio, and attending two movies a week at the alternative cinema, of which she would then neatly pen beautifully expressed summaries into a small notebook. (laughs) To this, a tiny, fragile, bird-like being, slowly dissolving around a pair of luminous, large brown eyes. I felt heavy in the heart, watching her dissolution. She had been so good to me. And everywhere I looked was death and endings, especially in my own life. That day, I ended up driving a young cousin of mine, one of my eldest cousin's three sons, back to the family home from the hospital, where several of us were gathered visiting my aunt that day. I was dropping him off before I hit the road for the 90-minute drive back to where I live. It was late afternoon, and we ended up in a snarl of rush hour traffic, so a trip that normally takes about 10 minutes stretched into half an hour. My young cousin and I found ourselves alone together, kind of for the first time. Normally, we would see each other in the context of a larger family gathering, and the conversation would turn around the usual superficial subjects like school, summer jobs, and so on, against a boisterous backdrop of 10 chattering kids, all of my cousin's children, and their hip slang-laden conversation. But this was different. Having exhausted the usual small talk and check-in, the energy shifted to slightly uncomfortable as both of us hovered at the edge of a deeper conversation. To go there or not to go there? That was the question. He's in his early 20s, a tall, handsome, intellectually gifted, and charming fellow whom my husband often dubbed the coolest. I had heard from his mother, my cousin, that he was recently back together with his long-distance girlfriend who is American, and I remember how funny it was to hear her voice in and among the others at the kids' table when she first came to visit the family in France a couple years ago. Suddenly there was this young female American voice in the crowd when for years mine had been the only one to offer that fresh, twangy, giggle-provoking dissonance when I occasionally chimed in with my native language around the dinner table. So this girlfriend stuck in my mind. She was at school in the States, and with time and distance, things fell apart between my young cousin and her, but now, apparently, they were back together. So I asked after her. Yeah, he said, suddenly animated. I'm going to visit her in Florida during spring break. Great, I replied, reminding him that Should they ever wish to travel up to the panhandle, they should drop in on my mother. He cheerfully thanked me, and then there was a slight pause before, with a kindly but diplomatic reserve in his voice that he must have inherited from his father, long of the diplomatic corps, he asked me about my husband. How is he? Here we go, I thought. Although most of the family was aware I wasn't sure that it had filtered down to the younger generation that my husband and I had decided to separate, and he had left a few weeks prior to do some traveling before beginning his next contract. My heart 
bloomed and squeezed simultaneously, as it seems to do now when thinking or speaking of him, full of warmth and love and sadness all at once. He's well. I talked to him yesterday. I don't know if you know, I stepped into it delicately, but we are separating. My young cousin acquiesced with a solemn nod. Yeah, I heard. My husband is universally beloved in my family and by just about anyone and everyone he meets. He has an unfailingly sunny disposition, as well as a gift of making other people feel special. I call him the sun god because of this quality of shining, radiant, beamingness that emanates from him to everyone around. Plus, he's nowhere happier than in the sun. The news of our decision was met with dismay, not only for us personally and the difficulty of the decision and the heartbreak, but because his presence in our family is genuinely valued and appreciated. Sometimes I wonder if they wouldn't have preferred to keep him instead of me, being that he's much more fun, not to mention a fantastic host who knows how to mix a drink. My young cousin then earned his nickname of the coolest, with a genuine question that dared to probe into the personal. Can I ask why? I felt such gratitude for him at that moment for wanting to know more about what goes on in human hearts. And he seemed genuinely perplexed, like so many people when they heard our news. After all, my husband and I have always shared and demonstrated a a lot of kindness and supportiveness, loving affection, and a solid friendship, as well as easy laughter. We truly like each other. We get along better as two people who are separating than most couples who stay together, he would joke, ironically, in our last few months of living together. So why would we, of all people, separate? I've asked myself that question inwardly so many times I can't count. I had traced the course of the dissolution of our marriage over and over, trying to understand it. And without going into the minutia of private sorrows that every couple accumulates over the years, and the reality of cohabiting with increasingly different lifestyles, it came down to one central theme that was curiously enough synthesized by my wonderful 96-year-old father-in-law after a conversation in which he and my mother-in-law, shocked by the news, posed me many questions. If I understood you, he concluded, it's a choice between growth and stagnation for both of you. Yes, I exclaimed with relief, feeling suddenly understood. So this was the phrase I used to attempt to answer my young cousin's question. It's about growth versus stagnation, I said, inwardly thanking my father-in-law. I realized that there were patterns at play within me unconsciously that caused me to attract that relationship many years ago. And the same with him, of course, there were interlocking patterns of dependency. And in outgrowing those patterns, it became clear to me that I had been using the relationship to protect myself from some very deep seated fears that now I have to face. And that in his way, my husband had been using our relationship to avoid dealing with his pain. We have these unspoken agreements in relationships to stay as we are to one another, to protect each other from our wounds by being each other's ideal. But if we're to grow, that's simply impossible. 
But my young cousin questioned with sincerity, isn't that what relationships are for, kind of? So you don't have to be alone with your fears? Oh boy, if there was ever a phrase to go right through me, it it was that one. He had articulated out loud an unconscious belief of mine. It was like looking in the mirror 30 years into the past. No, my dear, I said as gently as possible. And if you're in a relationship to save you from yourself, sooner or later, you'll find out it doesn't work that way. That isn't love. You're using the other person as a shield against what you can't face or, or to get something that you think you're missing. I could feel him silently computing this perspective. I realize most people don't see it that way, I said, and we have a lot of idealized projections onto relationships. But with what I do, I can't afford to cling to any illusions. I have to break them all, no matter how hard it is. There was a brief silence. Yeah, he said. What is it that you do again? By the time I dropped him off, it felt like there was a new level of connection between this young cousin and me. Whether or not he could connect with what I shared, I'm not sure, but I wished him a wonderful visit with his girlfriend and he disappeared into my aunt's, his grandmother's house. As I drove home in the dark, I pondered the painful mystery of intimate relationships. In no other area of my life have I been more stymied, frustrated, clueless, devastated, deluded, dark, false, hidden, exposed, giving, demanding, punishing, judging, loving, generous, withholding, hypocritical, fearful, role-playing, cruel, heartless, cowardly, passionate, unforgiving, consumed, and consuming. Hell, I'm human. And I come from what I would call a loving family with positive role models. I've always considered my relationships to be harmonious overall. (laughs) Holy cow. When I met my teacher eight years ago, he turned most of what I had learned or thought I understood about relationships upside down, or maybe right side up. Paradoxically, as my inner compass reoriented to inner knowing, rather than conformity to outer norms, the familiar bearings of my relationship life began to dissolve, resulting in chaos on the personal level. My life started to feel like a mess. And of course, I tried to keep it all under control. I didn't want to give up anything I had or change the forms. It was too threatening to my sense of identity and self-image. My husband and I had come perilously close a number of times to this same crossroads, and each time we'd backed away, clinging to each other and what we had built, but no closer to understanding our real issues. Our relationships are deeply connected to our sense of identity. As long as we all agree to play by certain rules, we can keep the structure intact. The rules are along the lines of, As long as you don't go into this area here and I don't go into that area there, we can pretend everything's okay. I'll look away when you do this and you look away when I do that and we can keep on going and so on. These unspoken agreements cover up all kinds of shady behavior and I'm not judging. I've been there and I've participated. 
I'm just saying that when your priority is keeping your identity and image safe, you have to have a lot of agreements. Everyone's invested in keeping up the front they want to show to the world, the person that they they want to believe themselves to be. And that requires a lot of stagecraft. The only thing that can blow the whole thing apart is a truth bomb detonating within one of the parties or lobbed in by an external force. Again, it's not even conscious. It's just what most people do. And I've been able to observe it and be right in the middle of it with my own family. And I've shed copious tears of pain from being unable to be totally authentic without tearing the family apart. And that's still not off the table. But we don't talk about certain subjects. We look the other way regarding certain behaviors. We live lives of quiet desperation and longing and meet our unmet needs somewhat discreetly or furtively. What else are you supposed to do when you think that you're this person in this family and this is your only identity? I mean, if you are totally identified with the personal, everything collapses down to that level. And all you think about is holding yourself and your your life together around you because that's all you've got as far as you're concerned. But when your sense of identity dissolves, what happens to those relationships? Painful honesty replaces role-playing and games. Reality replaces projection. Control is no longer possible. Forced patter gives way to silence. The daily dynamics of relational interaction go all cattywampus. The habits of daily life that crept in to avoid real intimacy and connection feel empty and pointless. What's left? A heart that's broken wide open. An overwhelming love for the beloved and the painful gifts of their love and a recognition that the patterns of the false self that had kept you together no longer have traction. You let go of your death grip on the other and begin to drift away from dependency on one another. And it's liberating and it's incredibly disorienting. Now I had chosen to walk away from security, from companionship and affection and a hand to hold for the very reasons I had clung to the comfort and reassurance of my primary relationship, fear. I was still afraid with him or without him, either way. (laughs) And either I would be driven by that fear or dissolve it, but no one could do it for me. Leaving all that behind means leaving the old identity behind not to adopt a new one, but to be in the void without one. It's about letting go of the familiar feeling of being someone's wife, someone's daughter, sister, aunt, cousin, mother, lover. It's another death. It's confrontation of aloneness. It's acceptance of non-being. The soul says, I cannot be bound by any of this anymore. This is not what I am but I still don't feel free. I just feel afraid. Who am I without these external bearings? The mind wants desperately to hold on to something solid. 
This is going through the void. It's dark. It's empty. And the mind's fearful thoughts echo everywhere. In dealing with our biggest fears, even when we're coupled or surrounded by family, we're still alone in that fear. When you realize you've spent your entire life trying to control everything out there so as not to feel that fear, it's shocking. The entire persona was built around avoiding it, keeping it well out of awareness and unconsciously compensating for it. You realize that nothing you thought you were is even real. What was it all for? The last time I saw my aunt alive, I had gone to spend a couple hours with her in the hospital. When I arrived at noon sharp, the beginning of visiting hours, she was heavily asleep, propped up in an armchair by the kindly personnel. They knew that my cousins wanted her moved between the bed and the armchair so she could spend time in different positions. So I walked in, I greeted her, I kissed her, I chatted to her about the family and settled into a chair to meditate. I figured if she was sleeping, that was the best use of time for both of us. After about half an hour, my eyes just opened on their own, and I found her wide awake and staring at me with amazing intensity. She was breathing strongly through her nose, and her eyes were glistening. I hopped up and and said, you're awake, you're looking at me. And I took her twisted hands in mine. She continued to stare right into me. My heart turned over with a deep feeling, though I couldn't say what it was exactly. For weeks, since she could no longer speak, except to utter a few words here and there, my aunt's truest means of communication were her eyes. We stared into each other's eyes for hours, it seemed. Whereas previously... She hadn't been one to comfortably hold a gaze or sit in silence. Her illness had cracked open and dissolved the ego, and her persona had eroded, leaving a palpable presence that radiated through her eyes. I feel like I got to know her better in those few months when she was in the hospital than I had ever known her my whole life. Movement required effort, but at that moment, she took her hand out from between mine and placed it on top of my hand, then squeezed it deliberately three or four times really hard while looking right into my soul. It was as if she understood everything now, and watching me meditate for however long it was had seen into me and everything I had come to France to try to let go of all those years ago, had seen the process of dissolution I was in and knew it by her own recent experience. As she disappeared from this world and was stripped of her familiar identity, she was forced to let go, allow us all to love her and take care of her and surrender to the unknown. During those moments with her, When she particularly connected with me, I often said to her, yes, I see you. I see you. And now it seemed that she was saying the same to me. I see you. A few days later, she quietly passed in her sleep. 
we can allow dissolution and the fear and vulnerability it calls forth. It's coagulum solvare, the old axiom of alchemy, densification and dispersion. Dissolution. Everything falls apart. It's natural. It calls for our surrender and acceptance of non-being. It teaches us to let go of what we thought we were. Sooner or later, we have to let it go. This is what I keep reminding myself of when the fear of dissolution takes hold. Relax. Feel. Let go. Repeat. That's all for now. I'll see you next time. Meanwhile, walk in grace. Thank you for joining me in the grace space, where you're always in the right place. If you love this podcast, I invite you to subscribe to it and submit a review if you feel called to do so. Also, be sure to sign up for my newsletter using the link in the show notes. I look forward to spending this time with you again next week. Meanwhile, walk in grace.